At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Have you ever had those moments where you are not quite prepared? Uh, Your mind isn't really uh, tuned in to the reality that you are about to embark upon? You just, you maybe got a different set of expectations about something you're headed into than the reality of what it actually is. You have those moments where you're just confused in that way, like this is not what I thought it would be at all. On one of our family's first trips to Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, we found out that one of the areas that we wanted to hike in was, was at capacity. We were all prepared. I had everybody ready, mapped out the trails that we were going to hike. We were going to go up to some pretty alpine lake. And so, you know, thinking like this is a three-mile hike. Everybody in the family can do that. My parents were with us. You know, it's just going to be great. And we get into the park, and we get down the road towards the trailhead, and then there's a, a little tent set up by the rangers. And they stop us, and they, st- they say, hey, listen, uh, the trailheads are completely full down there. There's just at capacity, too many people. You got to turn around. You got to go somewhere else in the park. You've got you to pivot and, and make a different arrangement. And so, I have a tendency to look at a map and kind of go, you know, oh, here's some trails here or there. Like, that one's probably not as hard as it looks like. There's super easy, nothing to it. And so when, when the ranger diverted us, I knew, like, well, there's another trail nearby here called Cub Lake. It's not, I mean, instead of three miles, it's like five miles. I mean, it's not that much harder. It's going to be, it's, a, it's another pretty lake. Like, this is, we can handle that. We can do that. So it'll just be something different for us. So, so we... We transitioned. We, we parked up at that trailhead and thought, you know, this is going to be great, except uh, we weren't prepared. We were not really ready for the trail and what it actually, actually was. Let me tell you a little bit why that was the case. First of all, it was hot that day. Like, we got started a little bit later in the day, uh, hiking out on that, and, you know, it was just a hot day uh, to do five miles uh, in that. Secondly, it was not five miles. It was nine <laughs> Once we figured that out, you know. <laughs> a third we weren't really prepared for because we had, I think, two 20-ounce bottles of water among six of us. We were just going on a short hike, right? Just up to a lake, you know, just a little sip here or there. We didn't need a lot. Um, there was minimal snacks. I think we had a couple Cliff Bars for all of us, maybe. Um, we were not prepared or ready. Our expectations were not meeting reality in any way. And I wish I would have had somebody with common sense uh, with us Tell me before we started that hike, hey, you're not prepared. You're not ready. This is trail is a lot harder than, than you think it is. It will not go well for you. Needless to say, that person wasn't there. We set out. We started walking in the meadow. Like, this is going to be great. And then the, the hill started to climb. And like I said, nine miles later, my family affectionately calls that hike the death march. Uh, it was just the Cub Lake death march. Ethan, to this day, begrudges that thing and will not forgive me for taking him on it. But we made it, right? So much would have been better if my expectations, if our expectations had been set right. We had been actually prepared for what was ahead. Would you be encouraged to keep following Jesus? Would you you be encouraged staying on the way if you had a better sense as a follower of his of what you could expect going forward? Think about your life and following Jesus, like if if you had somebody say to you, like, here's what's coming down the pipe, here's, here's how life is going to unfold for you going forward, would that help you 
be more faithful, to endure, to, to, to hang out? I'm concerned that many in Christianity, many Christians today have a false or unrealistic set of expectations, maybe even a, a mythological understanding about our relationships with the world and our relationships with God as they follow Jesus. We have a way of thinking about those relationships. We have a, a set of expectations that are kind of in our head, but they don't necessarily match up with the way Jesus lays out reality for us and the way Jesus talks about these expectations. And when we have that wrong understanding, when reality does hit us, when we actually get on the trail and we find it was five miles, not nine, or nine miles, not five, and it's hot, and we have very limited provisions, we become spiritually anxious and maybe even angry. We get discouraged. We say, I don't want to do this at all. I'm going to bail out altogether. This following Jesus thing is terrible. Thankfully, Jesus didn't send us in blind. He doesn't say, hey, go out into the world, have fun with that, it'll be, it'll be great, daisies and roses, every day of Friday, and as you follow me, it'll be wonderful. Jesus sets proper reality for us so that we can be prepared, we can have clarity about what our relationship to him and to the world will really look like as we follow him. And Jesus is very clear about this. He says in chapter 16, verse 1, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus' goal and intention in teaching us this is so that we would stay on the path, that we would persevere and endure and, and remain in Him. His goal in this farewell discourse is to strengthen us. He wants to give us reality as it is so that we will not fall away, but we'll stay on the path and continue to follow and walk with Him. So I think it's wise for us this morning to ask the question, what should we expect as we follow the way of Jesus? What's, what's really on the trail ahead of us in regard to our relationships with the world and our relationship with Him? What's really on the trail ahead of us so that we have it fixed in our minds with reality, so that we walk well, so that we will not fall away, as Jesus says, I, I tell you these things to keep you from falling away. Well, let me speak to the two relationships that we have here, the world and, and with the Lord Himself, with God. What are these two ex, uh, realities with regard to these, these two relationships? And so let's start with the world, and let me drop into that. As Jesus says, think about your relationship with the world. They hate me. The haters persecute Jesus. They will also persecute you. It, with regard to the world, reality says, as we follow Jesus, the haters Persecute him, they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you as well. That's, that's how the world will view and treat us. It won't be pretty. Jesus says this in verse 18 of chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, the word there, if, is not just like the maybe kind of thing. Jesus really does lean in. He's, he's expecting the world will hate us. The world will hate you. But as you experience that, as you, as you come around that, as you come under that hatred, know that it's hated me first. I, I've been hated before you. When Jesus talks about the world, we might want to take a moment and understand what does he mean by the world here? Jesus is not just talking about planet Earth or, or the universe. He's referring to here, as one scholar puts it, the created order, especially human beings and human affairs, in rebellion to its maker. The world is Jesus uses that term here in John 15, describes the world against God, the earth in upheaval, as it were. Humanity and all the systems and all the structures of who we are raised in opposition to God. That is the definition of the world. So where the world opposes God, that's, 
That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, that system, that structure, that sphere of relationship, they hate me. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be discouraged. If, if there's animosity coming our way, if there's loathing from the world, if there's disregard, if there's a lack of favor, Jesus says, that's, that's what they did to me. I'm the first here. I led the way in this. Follow me. In fact, Jesus tells us to remember that the world hated him before we were ever hated. It started towards him. And Jesus spells out in verses 19 through 21 some reasons of why the world will hate us. We get confused by, why does the world treat us this way? Why do they hate us? Like, what's this all about? Well, Jesus talks about that. Let me tell you why, he says. If you were of the world, he says in verse 19, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the first reason that Jesus gives that the world hates us is because we are not of the world. He's talking again about a sphere of relationship. We have been rescued if you are in Christ. If you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have seen that he has come and lived the perfect sinless life that you have not lived, and he has died as a substitute, a sacrifice for your sin on your behalf, and that he was raised again as King and Lord over all things from the dead on the third day, and ascended to his Father. If you've seen him for who he is and believed and put your faith and trust in him, you have been bought, redeemed, purchased, brought out of the sphere of the world. Paul says in Colossians, you are no longer a part of the domain of darkness, but have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You live in a new realm. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You no longer belong to this world. But the world loves itself, and it's opposed to anything foreign or different from it. It becomes hostile towards it. So Jesus says the world will hate you because you don't belong to this world. You're not a part of it any longer. I chose you out of the world. I rescued and redeemed you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. Think about the white blood cells in your body when there's a bacteria or a virus, something foreign in your your physical body. The white blood cells, they go on the attack against it. They're trying to keep you whole and pure. That's, That's the way the world perceives Followers of Jesus, they hated him, and because we are not part of this world, not part of this kingdom, we are a foreign object here in this world, the world hates us. It will because it hated him. Jesus says the world hates you, first of all, because you belong to him. He has pulled you out of the world. He has saved us and rescued us. So we're no longer part of this world. That's the first reason. Second of all, Jesus says the world will hate you because they hated him. He, the master, has been hated by the world. So he says in verse 20, remember the word I said to you. He's referring back to what he said in chapter 13 as he was washing their feet. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus just invites his followers to remember what he said and said, think about who the greater is, me, the master. They hate me. They have hated me. And, and you as servants, do you, you think, do you, you believe that somehow you should be treated differently or better? No. If they hated me, the greater, then you, the servants, the lesser, will be treated the same. And the world does that. The world hates Jesus. It truly does. 
Even though there are attempts by the world to to appropriate him or to abscond Jesus into their own designs and whims, when you get right down to it, the world, when they see Jesus for who he truly is and what he truly claims, they hate him. He is hated by the world. As they persecuted him, as Jesus was led to the cross, as he was betrayed and denied, as he suffered and died, so will his followers also be treated that same way. So we shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, they don't like me anymore because I'm a follower of Jesus. We should be like, oh, that's, they did that to Jesus? I'm following right along in that. There's, there's so many attempts by Christians today in the world to try and make the world like us, to try and get the approval of the world, and I think it's absolutely foolish. We, our master was hated. They killed him. Why do we think that we should be treated any better or differently? So, first of all, because you're not of the world, you'll be hated. Secondly, because the master is hated by the world, so you will be hated. Thirdly, Jesus says, ultimately, they don't, they, they don't love us, they persecute us, they hate us because they don't know God. I mean, it's not really ultimately about you and me. It's about, it's about God and who He is as the world relates to Him. The ultimate problem the world has with every follower of Jesus has very little to do with the follower of Jesus, although sometimes we self-inflict our wounds, and it has everything to do with God himself. They don't know him. Jesus says all in verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because of who I am, because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know. The word know there is the idea, not just of intellectual knowledge. There can be people out there in the world who know, oh yeah, there is a God who exists, and he, he should be all-knowing and all-loving. They, they, they know facts about God, but, but the word that John is using here is the word for communion, for intimacy, for relationship, covenant. They don't have that relationship with the God of the universe. And because they don't know him, They aren't reconciled to him. They aren't in relationship with him. They hate him and everyone who follows him. Jesus, in fact, told the religious leaders that they didn't know the Father because they didn't know him, Jesus. Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know the Father also. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To know the Father means that we know the Son, Jesus that we worship and follow Jesus. And if we don't worship and follow Jesus, then we don't know God. Jesus is saying that the world will persecute his followers because they don't have eternal life. They don't know Christ. They don't know the Father. And here's the deeper issue in all of this. The world has revelation. The knowledge of who God is and, and how to be in relationship with him, how to be reconciled, it is not hidden off in a corner somewhere. It's not some secret The world is without excuse. When Jesus speaks of the world here in chapter 15, he's also aiming his comments specifically at the religious leaders of his day, the Jewish religious leaders who were opposed to him. They were part of the world system. So you can see just how how radical this statement is. Jesus is saying to his opponents right there in that moment, the Jewish leaders who thought, hey, we're close with God, we are the kingdom, we are it, he's saying to them, you don't know God. You're part of the world system. And yet they had clear revelation, and that revelation stands in judgment over them. Look what Jesus says in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. 
But now they have no excuse for their sin. Because the Son of God came and lived among them, taught them, showed them the kingdom of God, they're culpable. They have to do something with that revelation. If there was no revelation of Christ to the world, the religious leaders would have no guilt for it. But there is clear revelation because the Son, Jesus, explains the Father. That's what John said in John 1.18. The Son, the one and only who is at the Father's side, He has explained Him. So Jesus says, the Son explains the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. Whoever hates me hates my Father also, verse 23. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. So the revelation is there. Not just Jesus' words, but His works as well. They reveal the Father. We see God the Father in God the Son. And the world is without excuse. You say, well, okay, like we don't have Jesus among us today, so how can everyone be without excuse? How can there be guilt among us? Because Jesus isn't standing here in the middle of us right now. We have revelation, deeper revelation, from the Word of God itself. All Scripture is God-breathed for us to know Jesus, the Son, to know the Father. And it's there. So Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. That's the issue today. It's that people, the world, suppresses truth. We try and push down who God is. He says, for what can be known about God is plain among them because God has shown it to him. He's not hidden. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when you go out and you look at nature, you look at the beautiful fall trees and the colors that are there, you can't just say, well, all oh, random chance, you know, this boggles my mind. Those are the fingerprints of God all over nature saying, I exist. I'm here. I'm beautiful. I'm powerful. I'm glorious. So that no human being goes, oh, I didn't know. You're without excuse. Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we have the Word of God now. Nature shows us that God exists. The Word of God shows us that God loves us and has sent His Son to redeem us. So everywhere the Word is communicated, everywhere where Scriptures are, we're culpable. We have to encounter the question of what do we do with this God? And that's why the world hates us, because they keep coming under judgment. They've had clarity, they've had revelation, and there's yet no real knowledge there. Friends, that's the world's system. Revelation, yet always suppressing the truth, always ignoring, always exchanging, always denying, and ultimately hating God. And if we feel that hatred, it's only because they've hated Him first. It goes back to the ultimate source. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor and theologian during the time of World War II and was actually assassinated, murdered by Hitler, Hitler's authority and command, he wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, suffering is the badge of a true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Martin Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. A true church is a church that suffers. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. So, so let me ask the question, what does that mean for our lives? Maybe we should do, as some of our modern poets have suggested, the haters going to hate, 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 
So I'm just going to shake, 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 shake it off. Maybe. <laughs> no, let's, let's be sure we view into, build into our view of what it means to truly follow Jesus. Our, our mind should be set with the understanding that we will be hated. Now, we shouldn't be hated for being rude or unloving or arrogant or aggressive. We shouldn't be hated because we're jerks or because we sin. Friends, you can't claim persecution from the world if you're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit towards the world. But if we are despised on account of Jesus' name, despite our love, despite our faithfulness, despite our gentleness, and so forth, then, then how should we live? Well, a couple things. First of all, we should, we should have a part prepared to undergo suffering and affliction for the sake of Christ. We should, we should be ready to say, okay, suffering will come. We know the Scripture says that when the suffering comes, when the trials come, it is to produce steadfastness within us so that we may be whole and mature and complete, lacking nothing. We will be opposed. We, we need to get that in our hearts and our heads. We will be opposed and hated. We will be rejected as we follow Jesus. We will be attacked and criminalized and wronged. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. But in response to that, don't be hostile. There's a movement going on right now, and I think it's driven by the power, uh, the desire for power and influence in politics. It's a movement that's creeping in among the church. It's insidious. It's evil. And that movement says, fight back. Get aggressive. Don't be meek or humble or gentle or kind. That's weakness. We've got to take back what's ours. Stand up and fight. And it's wrong. Jesus himself put it very differently. In his Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon of all, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And somehow or another, I still hear churches saying that sort of thing today. Yeah, just love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Let's own the whoever. But Jesus says, I say to you, under his authority, the authority of the king of all kings, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Is that our posture? To love and to pray for and to serve and to share and to forgive. Remember, Jesus came to his enemies not to own them, but to suffer and to lay down his life for them. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering and laying down your life. You cannot lay down your life for someone you are trying to beat. You can't serve someone you're trying to dominate. You can't love someone you're attempting to make a loser. And I know the pushback. Well, pastor, the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. We can't be gentle. We'll just lose it all. Do you not understand that the, the history of the church since Jesus' crucifixion has been that of suffering, that, that our current cultural reality in America over the last 300 years has actually been very abnormal to the way of the gospel? It's been a relative peace. Friends, that peace is disappearing. Okay. I'm not intended to go back to a golden age. I want to keep moving forward with Jesus and his cross because that's the way Jesus calls us to. And it shouldn't be a surprise. So we should not be taken unaware. We should not be surprised that non-regenerate, non-sanctified people act like non-regenerate, non-sanctified people. That they push forward their ideologies and their legislations and that. That should not surprise us at all. Maybe our real problem is that we are so comfortable with the world that when it does turn against us, we'd rather have the comfort back than the way of the cross. 
Jesus' way was the way of the cross. So it must be for his followers. So with regard to the world, we should expect to be hated because Jesus was. But there's another relationship here. So let me keep moving on. What about our relationship with him? And where does God stand towards us in all of this? In relationship to God, we see that the helper promotes Jesus. And so he will help us too. Look with me at verse 26. Jesus says, the world will hate you, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, Jesus speaking to his 11 disciples here, he points them to a future time, and he says, the Holy Spirit, the helper will come, the, the, the advocate, the, the paraclete, the counselor, he will come. This is good news for them and for us as well. This is a matter of, of grace and love towards us. And let, me, let me show you how. First of all, when Jesus says that the Spirit will come, which is a future moment to them at that time and originally hearing it, Jesus is promising them a gift. He's saying, a gift is coming. I will not leave you as orphans, but one who will come, who will help you, who will assist you, who will advocate for you, the Holy Spirit. And that day was realized. It's not just a future event for us, but it is a past event that has happened. The gift the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost. We read about that in Acts 2 when the Spirit was sent and indwells all believers, which fulfills Jesus' words and the words of the Old Testament in Joel 2. The Spirit was given to all who are in Christ. So when you believe, you are gifted the Spirit. You have the Helper resident with you. Jesus loves you. He sent the Spirit, sent the Helper, sent the Paraclete who comes for your help, for your strength. Second of all, the Spirit is sent by Jesus Himself. Jesus gives this gift of the Spirit to us. He says, whom I will send to you. Jesus says to the Spirit, Spirit, go, indwell them, empower them, be with them, equip them. Or as He said in chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. The Son of God is personally involved in our continued equipping and support and building, being built up. Because he has sent the Spirit for us, for our aid. Furthermore, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Father is involved in sending us all the aid we need in the Spirit. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. That term proceeds shows the relationship of the Spirit with the Father, the Father breathes him out. He's breathed out, proceeding from, coming from. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. The Father himself sent the Spirit for our support. Here's the entirety of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, every member of the Trinity, one God, yet three distinct persons, loving us, caring for us, coming to support our aid, strengthening us as the world hates us. The point is, God is entirely committed to your staying on the way. He is entirely committed to your bearing fruit, proving you are disciples. So now we ask the question, why do we need the Spirit? Well, Jesus bears that out more. First of all, because we're called to bear fruit. Jesus says the mission of the Spirit is that He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. Well, how do we bear witness about Him? It's through the Spirit who bears witness about Christ. Or as I like to say it here, 
Our mission and our goal as a church is to put the spotlight on Jesus. The Spirit does that, and as we have the Spirit, as we trust Him, as we're called to bear fruit, we put the spotlight on Jesus ourselves. That's how we bear fruit. He will in your life do that. Secondly, Jesus sends the Spirit. We have the Spirit because, let's be honest, we're weak. We're spiritually struggling. Left to our own devices, we would all fall away. We wouldn't stand. Yet the Spirit has been given so that we won't. When we're faced with the hatred of the world and the temptation to fail and to bail out, the Spirit has been given. When the temptation is there to compromise or to capitulate, we have the Spirit, as Jesus says, so that we will not fall away. You will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And he says, I have said all these things to you. I'm telling you you have the Spirit to keep you from falling away. The Spirit supplies and supports and helps us so that we stay on the way, so that we endure, that we bear fruit. This is why Jesus has spoken this to us for our good today. He's, he's saying, I want you to stay on the path. I want you to know that in relationship to the world, they will hate you. But in relationship to me, I am sending my spirit to support and supply and aid you. It's a miraculous, amazing, wonderful gift. What do we do with that? Jesus is in verses 2 through 4 here, the rest of this passage. He outlines the experience of the apostles. He just tells them, hey, here's what it's going to look like for you heading forward. Consider the story of Stephen. When you think about Stephen, Stephen was one of the first deacons of the church. We read about him in Acts chapter 6. He was serving and honoring God. The scripture said he was a man full of the spirit, full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. And as Stephen went out into the world, the world hated him. He was in the synagogue teaching, and, and some began to dispute with him. They were jealous and disagreeable, and they started arguing with him. But what kept Stephen from backing down, backing away, giving up altogether? How was Stephen able to, able to endure the hatred of his countrymen as he shared the truth of Jesus with them? By the Spirit. Acts 6.10 says that they could not stand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So hostile to him, stirred up, those leaders stirred up another crowd and created a false controversy, and they opposed him. The scripture says in Acts 6 that they spoke against him, they, test, they brought up false witnesses. They said, this man speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. This, word speak, this man speaks words against the word Jesus walking, Stephen walking in the way of Jesus was hated by the world. The crowd opposed him. They charged him with blasphemy. They, they were violent towards him. And as he thought to communicate the truth of Jesus, they said, enough. They were enraged. They picked up stones ready to kill him. And what kept Stephen in that moment from just saying, hey, guys, put down the rocks. Like, hey, just take a time out. Maybe you misunderstood me. Like, there's your truth and there's my truth. And can't we just all get along? I mean, like, let's just make every road one way to God. And like, we all just exist together and just be you, do you, be sincere, whatever. I'm not judging you. No, Stephen proclaimed the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And as they picked up the stones to murder him. The scripture says, he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The Spirit enabled him to withstand, to endure suffering, to die. That's exactly what Jesus said would happen 
It's exactly what chapter 16, verse 2 sounds like. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. I mean, these religious leaders that stoned Stephen were like, you know what? Like, we're actually defending truth here. We're actually upholding God's name. No. And they will do these things, Jesus says, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you remember that I have told them to you. I'm just saying this all to you to prepare you and to equip you. Persevere. Keep on going. The Spirit will be with you. The Helper will come. And He is here to help us carry on. So we can bear witness to Jesus in our lives. We can share Him in the everyday places where we live and work and play because the Spirit will help us. Again, why does Jesus tell us all this? He tells us these things so that when the hour comes, we're not surprised. We're not caught unprepared. Our expectations actually meet reality. Or putting it this way, knowing our opposition and our support helps us stay on the way. Knowing our opposition, knowing how the world will treat us, and knowing the helper, the God who loves us and is with us will help us stay on the way. So, so when we know we'll be hated, we can brace for it. It's normative. When we know that we have the Spirit, we can persevere and continue to bear witness to Jesus. We'll stay on the way. We'll bear much fruit. Your mind should be ready this morning. I hope you're equipped to know there are haters in the world. The world will hate you. And you've been given the helper. So now, as, as I send us in a moment, after we sing... You can get out into the world following Jesus every day, equipped with reality, prepared, and we'll make much of him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.